the public healthcare system is now collapsed. It means that the basic healthcare is not readily available in the country. The coup has left the country's higher education system totally fragmented and broken. Almost all universities, including research institutions and medical universities, they all are now closed and they also suffered from politicization, militarization and human rights violations. I'm your host, Assam Ibrahim, and this is the Science in Exile podcast. In this series, we get an insight into the lives of scientists who are in exile, and we discuss how the past, present, and future of science can be preserved across borders. This podcast is part of an ongoing refugee and displaced scientist project run by Science International, a joint project by the World Academy of Sciences, the International Science Council, and the Inter-Academy Partnership. On today's episode, we hear from Dr. Piu Piu Tenzhou, a Burmese medical doctor with a PhD in epidemiology. She migrated from Myanmar to Hong Kong to work in an environment that allows her the right to academic freedom. She's currently a lecturer in the School of Public Health at the Hong Kong University. In November 2020, Aung San Suu Kyi's National League of Democracy Party won the general election in Myanmar. And on February 1st, 2021, there was a military coup in Myanmar, with the military forces disputing the election results. Since then, many healthcare workers and scientists have gone on strike, to which the military has responded through violence and persecution. Myanmar's military response is very irrational. I mean, it is really brutal. Uh, the military targeted medical doctors involved in the civil disobedience movement with extreme violence. They're trying to arrest the doctors. Many doctors lost their lives on the streets during the emergency care or rescue missions for protesters, and many more have been imprisoned for treating protesters. Most of my friends are in hiding because of the warrants for their arrest. The, the military has attacked health workers and facilities 179 times and killed 13 doctors so far, and endured 61 of the doctors since the coup. 139 doctors have been imprisoned so far, and then 51 health facilities have been seized by the military security forces. So currently there are 31 health facilities under military occupation, according to the UN News. So all the medical doctors who joined the civil disobedience movement are now on an arrest list, and many of them are now hiding for their life and safety. As a result, Myanmar's public health system is totally collapsed. Nothing is functioning at all at the moment. So in February, 1,000 doctors from 70 hospitals went on a protest against the military coup that ousted leader Aung San Suu Kyi. What is it that specifically led medical workers in Myanmar to protest in the first place? So in response to the coup on February 1, Myanmar doctors decided to go on strike, not for the salary, not for the poor facilities, but because they don't want to support brutal military regime. So they engaged in protests as well as a civil disobedience movement with an attempt to end the coup and to restore democracy. They argue that 
how could they continue to work under an undemocratic, ruthless military regime? So they think that it is very unethical to support such a brutal regime. Earlier this year, there were several doctor strikes like in Ireland, South Korea, Sierra Leone, etc. So many of these strikes did not last very long. In extreme cases, a few months, because governments, I mean decent governments, have to take the demands of the doctors seriously. Because medical professionals are generally regarded as an indispensable human resource for the country, so the governments usually negotiate with them very quickly. So some people might look at what's happening and they might argue that medical workers going on strike um, is unethical, um, especially in the midst of a pandemic. How did the doctors tackle this dilemma? Yeah, that is very uh, uh, important ethical question. So my colleagues in Myanmar have faced not only the threat of the military violence, they also have confronted a profound ethical dilemma. So to cope with this severe dilemma, many doctors are trying their best to continue their services through private sector or charity clinics. They just don't collaborate with the military, but they continue to support their patients. So they are free health services for the poor, so many makeshift clinics, etc. So I would like to argue that such kind of ethical questions should be directed not to the doctors, but to the Myanmar's military dictator, Mi Aulai, who initiated the coup. So my question is, is this ethical for a military leader to interfere with the politics and to cause such severe political and social unrest in the middle of a pandemic? So this is ethical question that we should direct to this dictator. So how do these events currently affect the broader scientific community, um, like academia and research in Myanmar? As many as 13,000 academics and staff at various universities in Myanmar are now suspended, removed. So it is about 45% of the workforce in higher education sector. Such a large number of suspicions could have a big impact on the ability of the country's universities to deliver education and the future looks so dark and hopeless for most of us. It was already one of the poorest in the region. It ranked 92 out of 93 countries in a global survey last year. So almost all students are starting to miss out crucial years of education. As you know, science and higher education is vital to a country's efforts to increase social capital and to promote social cohesion. The consequences are enormous. I really don't have what to describe how these events might potentially shape the future of science. All I can foresee is the darkness in various sizes and shapes. What do you think needs to be done right now internationally uh, to support the medical workers in Myanmar? Thank you for asking this question. So I think there could be three levels of assistance that we need from the international bodies. The first might be immediate assistance. The second is short-term assistance. And third is long-term assistance. The immediate actions should be taken 
right here, right now, because attacks are going on. Attacks against healthcare personnel must be prevented. So we need the help of global organizations like United Nations, World Health Organization, to highlight the problem of the attacks. And then health professionals, associations, societies, and organizations from all specialties and disciplines, they should unite in speaking up forcefully against all acts of discrimination, intimidation, and violence against health personnel in our country. And then secondly, we need to rescue those scientists who are now hiding for their life and safety. There are a lot of displaced scientists and medical workers in the ethnic region, border areas. They should be rescued and then they should be put under some international protection, such as a UN special protection or rescue missions. After that, this crisis could go for a long time. So we should really develop long-term plans and policies on how to support research and development activities as part of emergency measures and to recover those science in exile by creating packages, including refugee protection policies and replacement policies. And we should also allocate particular funding and research grants, especially dedicated to those who are in trouble. What aspects of a government's approach or activities do you think diminish the potential of science in a country? And uh, what aspects do you think help science flourish? The most important factor to me is political factor. I would like to give you an example of my country, Myanmar. So Myanmar has been living in very unstable conditions for 60 years. And then the science community in my country is really uh, diminished. I would say research quality, researchers or publications, very, very limited compared to like United States. So political stability is one important factor. And then my country is struggling with ethnic conflicts for 60 years. If you don't have a stable community, stable politics, other things you have to set aside. You have to just put forward your life, safety, basic livelihoods, right? So one, political stability. Second, economic conditions. Before this coup, we have 10 years of democratic transition. We got five years of democratic government, civilian government for five years, but we don't have enough money to invest in science. No matter how much we can say that we love science, if we are a poor country, poor people, we don't have enough funding to make science flourish. So politics, money. The third thing is that My community, like my country, has been closed and cut out from the world for like five decades. So most of our people, they don't know much about the advancements or some of them even may not understand what multiculturalism is. So the mindset of the people should also be opened and enlightened. So I would say three factors, politics, economics, and the mindset of the community. So the Science in Exile initiative aims to support science communities um, in situations such as this. 
what could the project partners and other international organizations do to help? So I really think science in exile could help a lot. They will be able to promote the awareness of how these people are in trouble. And then we may be able to help them to relocate in the countries, whatever country, which are ready to host them. Thank you, Dr. Piu Tenzhou, for being on this episode and giving us an insight into what the Burmese community is currently facing. This podcast is part of an ongoing refugee and displaced scientist project called Science in Exile. It's run by Science International, an initiative in which three global organizations collaborate at the forefront of science policy. These are the International Science Council, the World Academy of Sciences, and the Inter-Academy Partnership. Dr. Piu Piu was recently elected to the Science in Exile Steering Committee. For more information on the Science in Exile project, please head over to council.science slash science in exile. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the values and beliefs of Science International.